Hi, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so thanks very much for coming to this session. Um, I am Chinazo Cunningham. I am a professor of medicine. I'm a general internist at Montefiore Medical Center and Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Um, and I practice at an FQHC, I'm sure like many of you, and work with HIV-positive substance users. So today we're going to talk about opioids and HIV from pain management to addiction treatment. Um, so in terms of conflicts, my husband is employed by Quest Diagnostics, and we have stock. Um, after um, attending this presentation, ho hopefully, um, you'll be able to identify challenges specific to HIV-infected patients when managing chronic pain with opioids. You'll be able to identify some common mistakes in interpreting urine toxicology tests and describe benefits and challenges um, uh, of integrating buprenorphine treatment into HIV treatment. So in this talk, we're going to talk a little bit about opioids and the epidemiology around opioids, um, some of the challenges um, in pain management with opioids, um, opioid use and HIV outcomes, and integration of buprenorphine into HIV treatment. So this is an example. I live. Um, about 20 minutes outside of New York City in the suburbs. And I took um, our newspaper clippings from one month. And this is what was on the front page of our newspapers. So I'm sure all of you know that we are living in an opioid epidemic in this country, right? Unless you've been living under a rock. This is in the news, it's on the radio, it's everywhere. And I think we feel it as providers as well. What's, what's um, important to notice and was really a shift in the tide of... Um, 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 preventable deaths in the United States was that in 2018, for the first time, um, accidental poisoning became the leading cause of deaths, of preventable, preventative deaths. And so no longer are motor vehicle accidents the leading cause, but in, instead um, accidental poisoning. And of the accidental poisoning, drug poisoning is really the majority of the cause. So what do drug overdose deaths look like in the United States? So this is the most recent data from 2013, and there's clearly been a huge emphasis on the opioid epidemic. And so what we can see from this slide is that potentially there's this plateau now that's happening in overdoses related to opioid analgesics. So perhaps some good news, perhaps we're bending the curve. The problem is heroin. So while the opioid analgesics are flattening out, heroin is definitely increasing. Um, we see this in New York City, we see this nationwide. So why are there so many opioid-related overdose deaths? So I could have shown a ton of epidemiologic trends that basically are very similar in, in terms of the number of opioid prescriptions that are written, um, the number of opioid-related emergency room department visits, um, the number of deaths that you saw, and then also the treatment of opioid use disorders. So everything is really increasing. However, there's a huge gap in treatment. So this is kind of the sad state that we are in right now. And so this is data from 2013 that shows those who abuse or are dependent on opioids. So this red bar are those who are um, dependent or abusing opioid analgesics, and the blue portion is those who are abusing or dependent on heroin. And if you look at that little tiny bar, those are the number of people who are getting medication-assisted treatment. So this, these data are from national data up to 2013, um, from uh, ongoing you know, uh, studies that collect data from a national representative sample. So this is clearly huge, a huge problem. And I don't think that this is... This, this gap is going to decrease anytime soon un unless we, um, providers, really sort of take this on. So as many of you know, medication-assisted treatment with methadone is pretty fixed in this country in terms of the number of treatment slots that are available. However, what is not fixed is buprenorphine treatment, and that really has the potential to address this unmet need. And we're going to talk about that during this, this session. So I'm going to talk about a case that's going to illustrate some of the issues and challenges that we all deal with um, in taking care of HIV-infected patients. 
Uh, so JR is a 45-year-old Hispanic man with HIV, depression, opioid use disorder, and remission. He last used heroin eight years ago. And he's receiving HIV primary care from you for the past two years without any problems. In terms of his HIV, um, you can see his, his regimen, and he's over 95% adherent, and his, he's, has undetectable viral load. Um, he's had low-level constant right hip pain for a few months, uh, but now he reports that the pain is getting worse. He's tried acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy with little improvement. However, when he tried his friend's oxycodone, it helped relieve his pain. How often do you hear this story? <laughs> it's a very common scenario in my part of the world. Okay, so what issues should you be concerned about? So I'm just going to ask for a raise of hands here to kind of show uh, what, what people would do. And um, I would also like to hear some comments. We have microphones here and one that's going to be passed around. Um, so what issues should you be particularly concerned about in your HIV-positive versus HIV-negative patients? So A, um, chronic pain is more common than in HIV-positive patients. B, opioid analgesics are prescribed roughly in equal proportions among HIV-positive and negative individuals. C, opioid analgesics are prescribed in lower doses among HIV-positive patients. And D, the risks of opioid misuse and opioid use disorders are roughly equivalent between HIV and po positive and negative patients. So how many people, show of hands, think A is correct? Okay, how about B? Nobody. C? One, two, and D. Okay. So the correct answer here is actually A. So unfortunately for our HIV-positive patients, um, they really have, they have more pain, they're more likely to prescribe opioid analgesics, they're more likely to have opioid use disorders, um, and they're prescribed opioid analgesics in higher doses. Um, so there, there have been data um, that have looked at this, and so in some studies, um, in terms of chronic pain, some studies actually report up to 90% of HIV-positive patients have chronic pain, and and this is, in the general population that goes to primary care settings, roughly about 30%, so really a potentially big difference. Um, and we know, in terms of HIV-positive patients, there's a lot of reasons why people can have pain. So some of it's from the HIV itself, some of it's from the antiretroviral medications, and some of it is that people are growing older. In terms of opioid analgesics, they're more commonly prescribed in HIV-positive patients. So in some studies, up to 50% of those with chronic pain who are HIV positive can be prescribed opioid analgesics. And we also know that they're in higher doses among H in HIV positive than negative patients. And then, I mean, we all know that there are comorbid substance use disorders and mental health um, disorders in, in HIV positive patients. That's very common. And that, of course, makes this entire situation much more difficult and makes patients at higher risk for um, misuse and, and opioid use disorders. So after gathering more history and conducting a physical exam, you're confident that the patient, um, his pain is due to osteoarthritis. You talk to JR about your hesitancy to prescribe opioid analgesics because of his risk of having a poor outcome. You both agree to refer to an orthopedic surgeon as a good, that that's a good next step. A month later, um, JR reports the pain continued to worsen after his last visit with you. He went to the ER and he was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen. Um, this worked well for his pain. And he's asking you to prescribe more. So, um, again, for me, this is an incredibly common scenario. Okay, I see lots of nods of heads. Okay. Um, so, which of these responses is consistent with national treatment guidelines? A, you continue to prescribe the oxycodone and acetaminophen, but only for one month. B, you change short-acting oxycodone and acetaminophen to long-acting oxycodone. C, you reduce the oxycodone acetaminophen dose um, from a total of 60 milligrams a day of oxycodone to a total of 15 milligrams a day of oxycodone. D, you reduce the oxycodone acetaminophen dose similarly from 60 to 15 milligrams a day and you add clonazepam. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so how many uh, think the right answer is A? So that's an excellent question. So I'm just going to, um, if you guys have questions, I would love for you to, um, to either come up to the mic or raise your hand just so that, because of audio recording so people can hear. So the question was, are these, am I referring to treatment guidelines that are for HIV positive patients or pain, pain patients in general? That's an outstanding question and we are going to get to that in one minute. Okay, so how many say A? A few show of hands. How about B? C? So most people say C and D. Nobody. <laughs> I was told I couldn't have none of the above as an answer. Um, so I'm sure you all have heard about the CDC guidelines, right? That have come out in the last couple of months. So I actually was on one of the work groups for the CDC guidelines, and it was a very interesting process. And because we don't have great data, um, there's a lot of disagreement, and a lot of the um, recommendations are not necessarily based on data, but on sort of consensus um, with experts. So, so the CDC guideline is broken up into th kind of three big sections. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to, and there's a, um, I gave you the link here. Um, there's some sort of, you know, there's the full guidelines, but then there's also like small boxes or whatever that you can sort of just go to for easy reading. But essentially the guidelines um, talk about when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain, the opioid selection, which one, how much, um, what the dose is, how, pe how frequently people should be followed or, or discontinued, and then about assessing risk and addressing harms of opioid use. So if you go back to, to um, this question, um, so one of the challenges here is that my guess is that most people don't know how much 60 milligrams of oxycodone is or 15 milligrams of oxycodone is relative to what the recommendations are. So the recommendations are really around morphine milliequivalent. So when we talk about opioids, because every single opioid is different, dosed differently, we really need to convert them into morphine milliequivalents. And so this 60 milligrams is actually 90 morphine milliequivalents, um, which is on the high end. And so bringing somebody down to 15 milligrams is much more appropriate in terms of their risk. So if you don't know how to calculate morphine milliequivalents in your head, which, I mean, I certainly don't, there are apps. Um, the New York City Department of Health has an app. There are websites that do it. There's, there's a lot of resources out there. But it's definitely something, if, if particularly if patients in your setting are prescribed certain opioids, like in New York, in the Bronx, oxycodone is like big, more than hydrocodone. Um, and so, it's a, you know, so I sort of have a sense of, okay, that's 1.5 times in order to get the morphine mill equivalents. So I think it, this, this is useful for you to know because it really um, um, can give you information about potential harms. So going back... For this patient, so prescribing the lowest effective opioid dose, greater than 50 to 90 morphine milliequivalents, is, is um, what is most appropriate for him. And so we know there's no magic cutoff, um, but, but essentially there are curves that show the lower the dose, the better, and there's sort of these markers, thresholds of kind of 90 or 100, that once people get above those, that their risk for overdose really increases. Any comments or questions about this? The mic, wait. All right, I kind of sort of know that we do the short-acting versus the long-acting. I don't know the difference. So I think that's important for us to kind of take away oxycodone, Percocet, Toxicontin. Right. What's what? And right. So, and, and so, right, so... Percocet, for example, is the oxycodone, acetaminophen, it tends to be short-term, but oxycodone itself can be either short-term or long-term. And the same thing with morphine. So there's like immediate release or extended release, or oxycodone immediate release or extended release. So, you know, I think that that is something that's just important to keep in your head because, you know, things have changed dramatically when we think about um, pain management and opioids. And 
seven years ago, I would have been saying, oh, they should be on long-acting you know, long opioids, right? And now we realize long-acting opioids are associated with a lot of risks, including overdose and misuse. So now we're saying, no, that's not the case. It's short-acting. Um, so it is important, again, to know what's tend, you know, which of the opioids tend to be used in your region or in your clinic, and then be, being comfortable with what is short-acting, long-acting, and how um, it's related to morphine mill equivalents. Okay, so I can't prescribe an, an RN, but we have um, several patients, I'm from upstate New York, um, on morphine ER for the long-term pain, and then we have, um, I think they're on like hydrocodone for breakthrough. So is that, that's no longer like a recommendation? Correct. Okay. Correct. So, I mean, right, mm -hmm. so I think, again, seven years or eight years ago, this was yeah. really... The, the recommendation was exactly this, the long-acting and then the short-acting as the needed for yeah. breakthrough pain, but not anymore. What and would so, the guideline be then for someone with like a chronic back pain? Right. So the guidelines are as little as possible for a short yeah. period of time as possible with, the, with, with not long-acting, you know. So... Correct. Yeah. And so... Let me say, this is not perfect. Sorry, no, I just, <laughs> no. I thought of uh, our morphine ER no, 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 patients. Right, so. right. No, no, <laughs> this, this, is, this is not perfect. And I think really, really where I believe that the guidelines will make a huge impact is on people who are initiating opioids, right? I think for, pa I mean, really, look, I, I mean, I have, these, I have these patients too. And, you know, I, I didn't start them. I inherited them. And... Um, and I think, you know, when you have that situation, it's very challenging. And this doesn't necessarily address those patients. I think it, it more is going to address the patients who are seeking or starting opioids. Okay. Yes, the PDMP is a, a prescription drug monitoring program, or sometimes it's called PMP, Prescription Monitoring Program. Every state in the United States has one, right, except for Missouri. Hmm? Yeah, so, every, so every state has a prescription drug monitoring program, except for Missouri, as far as I know. And um, in New York, we are actually um, required to check it before every controlled substance prescription. And I know other states, I mean, I know states are all over the place in terms of requirements or not requirements. Um, I do think certainly this is the wave of the future. Yes. Hi. Um, I am a new NP, and I am in a clinic where, of course, a lot of our patients have opiates. Um, I'm okay with prescribing them. It's the patients that come in every single month that I haven't met that belong to other providers. They're coming in for their monthly script, and I don't know if I'm supposed to be signing that. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I'm allowed to sign for them, but I, I feel like that's very, very fuzzy, and I haven't found anybody to guide me. So, so I think for prescription opioids, right, because we really are not regulated as providers, well, I mean, I guess different states, so physician assistants and nurse practitioners in different states, I don't know, like, specific state laws, there's some regulation. For physicians, there's really no regulation. Um, this, this question actually becomes even more important with buprenorphine. Now, I know that... Um, and we're going to talk about this, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants at this point can't prescribe buprenorphine, but there are um, bills that are happening in the, in the legislation right now to, to change that. I, I just want to comment. I think it might depend on your state. In the state of Kentucky, you should not, different people should not be signing each month. As a matter of fact, that will flag that patient as a drug seeker. Um, and so that's why you do the CASPER, and there's only supposed, part of that agreement with the patient is there only supposed to be one person writing that. So I think it might depend on your state. I, I, I agree. I, th I think this is, you know, this is like in the weeds of what we do that is very challenging because it all sounds good. Like, you know, the patient should go to one pharmacy and have one provider. But, like, 
I'm in an FQHC where I'm only there one day a week, and then other doctors are two days a week, and then another doctor's there. Right? Like, that's impossible. And so, so I sort of take um, that to mean, like, facility. So, like, if the patient's coming to the same clinic, then to me that's appropriate. It's not the patient's fault that I'm only there one day a week. Um, but if the patient's going to, like, you know, 10 different facilities, I certainly see that as a big issue. But, for example, the, the, the um, PMP, the... Um, the, the monitoring program, you can't, um, you know, it's, if different doctors' names show up, even though they're doctors who are covering for me in my clinic, it could re- raise a red flag. Yes. Hi, I was just going to say to um, her, at our, at our office, um, we have them sign a contract, and they cannot get um, their narcotics from anybody else. So they have to know... Um, you know, they know when they have to keep their appointment. We give them an appointment when we are there. If we're only there one day a week, then that's when they come. And they understand that they cannot get it. That's right. Right. So, I mean, I do, right. So a couple of people have mentioned these contracts or these treatment agreements. Um, so even though I don't see it here, but it, 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 it's, it's in the guidelines about this sort of recommendation there actually, is no, there actually is no evidence that they work. <laughs> right. So, the, you know, a lot of these things, there's no evidence that they work. The, the, the PDMP or PMP, there's no evidence that it works. So there's a lot of studies that are now coming out. Um, but what we, studies that I know of that, that my colleagues are involved in show no change in emergency department-related visits. We're, we're right now looking at the New York City PMPs, and there's no difference at all between the amount of opioids prescribed or benzodiazepines prescribed. And we are mandated to look at this every single time. So I think these are all good practices. This is certainly part of what the recommendations are, but I just want to put that out there that I'm also a little skeptical about how much they work. Right. So, right. So, right. So law and laws and, and a lot of these are state laws. And I think um, we are we are um, having policies right now that are not guided by evidence and hopefully evidence will be coming. But right now, a lot of these policies are not guided by evidence. Yes. Perhaps you're going to get to this. And if so, I apologize. Do you recommend using the OAT or other kind of standardized uh, baseline objective assessment tools for opioid um, misuse prior to initiating opioids for chronic pain? That's an excellent question. Um, so, you know, there are no clear recommendations about screening for use disorders before starting opioids. I think the recommendations around taking a comprehensive history and exam, right? including substance use histories and family histories of substance use, but not any specific screening tools. So I think, so, you know, the issue of screening is a big issue. Um, There's a lot of data to support screening for alcohol use disorders, or alcohol use, so misuse or problematic use, hazardous use, or all these terms. And we know that by doing brief interventions, people are um, likely to um, reduce their alcohol intake. For drugs, no such evidence exists. In fact, there have been negative studies. If you screen for drug use and then do something about it, there's no difference between screening and non-screening. So I think we really don't know yet. I mean, again, these are like things that we think, okay, this all makes sense, but the data aren't there. It's there for alcohol, but not for drugs. I think we don't have a lot of evidence whether this works or not. We have some evidence it may not. What we do have really good evidence for is that these things increase heroin overdose deaths. And I think you always have to think about that. And I'm not speaking against trying to manage opiates better. I think it's a really good idea. But there are unintended consequences that are happening. There's very clear evidence that it's happening and people are dying as a result of being kind of, because really, you know, for most primary care providers and most providers that are doing pain medication with opiates, this kind of stuff causes them to walk away from those yeah. patients. And the result is death. So I just... Yeah. I don't know if you were here and you saw my slides at the beginning um, about... 
about, so, I mean, I am with you very much about unintended consequences. I mean, again, I think that all these things sound good. I am concerned about unintended consequences, and specifically heroin. And we know from national data that the opioid analgesic-related deaths have plateaued, and heroin continues to increase. I see this in my own, in New York City. I see this, we see this nationally. So I think we have to be careful. Did you want to about medication-assisted treatment that you had was so scary. No, good. Yes, we have a huge gap in, the, in, in treatment needs. I think we only have an hour, and I think each yeah. of us yeah. as primary care providers and whatnot can go on and on about our sagas with treating yeah. people's pain. Um, I'm gonna, I wanna propose that we focus less on the poison that we prescribe and focus more on the antidote that okay. many of us do not prescribe yet. Okay, great. And okay, great, great suggestion. Okay, so I, I want to actually just get back to um, your question too about these the CDC guidelines. So these are all guidelines for general patients, not necessarily for HIV um, infected patients. And so I think you know that begs the question: is is there something different or special about HIV? So what we do know, I mean, you guys have all just been saying this, is that providers, and I would say HIV providers and general medical providers in general, have li little confidence in managing pain in opiates. There's a fear of um, causing opioid disorders. There's infrequent use of guideline-recommended um, monitoring practices, and there's little confidence in the ability to actually recognize opioid misuse disorders. I, I would actually argue a lot of HIV providers are actually better at this than the general population. But what we have found um, is that when, when we um, asked HIV providers about their opinions around prescribing opioids, what we, what we found was this sort of HIV paradigm. And so, so this is really, I think, unique to HIV and HIV providers. And so this paradigm essentially is one that either aligns with or conflicts with safe opioid prescribing practices. And so many HIV providers are familiar with substance use, right, and, are, are, and feel comfortable speaking about substance use. So that's great. Um, obviously, and, and a lot of HIV providers feel like they're allies, they're patients' allies. But what we also saw was that HIV providers really gave priority to HIV viral load suppression as compared to some of the issues that we're talking about with opioids. And so I just want to give you an example of some of the comments that we heard in our qualitative study that really point to some of the, the particular challenges that we have in HIV care. So one person said it's different from general medicine. In the HIV population, sometimes I feel like the opioids are used as a way to bring them in, um, to have them come back to each session so you can build trust and eventually get them onto heart. It's a different mindset. Also, by prescribing opioids, you may increase your chances of having them remain in care so they can benefit from actually having their HIV treated. Um, and finally, I was particularly struck by this comment, we make a deal that, you know, I will continue to write these medications for you and I will do it reliably once a month, but I have to see you and we have to talk about your heart. I think many patients have gotten improvement in their HIV control because of that frequent interaction with the medical system. So I think a lot of providers actually feel like this is doing more good than harm because perhaps they come back more frequently and that gives you more opportunity to interact with the patient and address their HIV. And so, so do we know how, what about this relationship between opioids and HIV? Um, so how are opioids associated with HIV? Are opioid analgesics associated with better heart utilization, better heart adherence, viral load suppression? Um, or are studies inconclusive about, about the relationship between opioids and HIV outcomes? So raise your hand if you think A is right, B, C, D. Okay, great. Okay, so yes, you're, you're totally right. So few studies have examined the relationship between opioids and HIV, and there's a lot of conflicting findings. They're really all over the map. Some have shown improvement in heart utilizations, others have not. Some show... Um, really no difference in adherence to heart. Um, some showed, a couple, a couple showed um, improvement in, or worsening of viral load, others didn't show any difference. And so, so I think this is a big question because especially if HIV providers have this mindset that actually by giving opioids, we're doing something good for their HIV because that's the sort of hook to keep them coming back. 
we don't really have the data to support that, but we also don't have the data to support the opposite. We don't really know. So this is something that um, my colleagues and I are actually looking at right now. We'll have an answer in like five years um, about the role, like prescription opioid analgesics and the association with HIV outcomes. How about buprenorphine and HIV outcomes? We were going to get there. Okay. Um, so using the state PDMP, you confirm that uh, JR was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen by the emergency room. You make an agreement to continue prescribing this, but only for one week. You order a urine drug test during his visit, and he agrees to address his osteoarthritis by seeing an orthopedic surgeon. This is what the urine drug test results show. So opiates is positive and oxycodone is positive. So how do you interpret these results? A, he's taking oxycodone and heroin. B, he's taking oxycodone and another opiate like hydrocodone. C, he's taking high doses of oxycodone. Or D, all of the above. So how many say A? No. How many say B? A few. How about C? D. Okay. So I just want to point out to you this, which I left in the back, which is a urine reference guide that my colleagues, one of my colleagues developed. We are terrible at interpreting urine drug tests. Um, and it is not easy. You have to know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, it can have real implications on patient's care. So the correct answer here is all of the above. Um, so, this, so in this is this fabulous table figure that I look at frequently that tells you what to expect based on what type of opioids people are taking. So when is oxycodone going to be positive? When is opiate going to be positive? When can you expect false positives? Um, and, you know, it, it, incorrect interpretation I have seen frequently can lead to doctors saying, that's it, I'm done because you must be selling your medications, or doctors saying, that's it, I'm done because you must be using heroin, right? And often the doctors are not correct. So, I mean, when I went to medical school, I got, like, no training, ne zero, zero training on this. And so it's all about understanding the metabolites and understanding your lab. So I just want to point out three really common mistakes that I see. So the first is, if someone's being prescribed oxycodone, and so oxycodone and hydrocodone, so that's Vicodin and Percocet, are the most commonly prescribed opioids. In my area, it's oxycodone. So in order to really um, evaluate whether or not a patient is taking oxycodone, you must have oxycodone in your urine drug test. That opiates itself is not enough. It will not detect it. So you have to know what your lab is testing for. And you have to ask for oxycodone to be on that panel. The second thing is, if taken in high enough doses, essentially you can get spillover of oxycodone that makes the opiates positive. Okay, so that in, the, in this patient's case, it could, his positive opiate could have been from heroin, could have been from hydrocodone, could have been from spillover because of a high dose of oxycodone. There's no way to know that based on these screening tests that we do in our labs. Um, and let me just say, this brings me to this point. In order, so you have to understand the metabolic pathway, and when in doubt, order a confirmatory test, which is a gas chromography mass spectrography, which is GCMS. A lot of times labs don't do this. It's a send-out lab. It takes like a couple of days to get back, at least in our system. But this is the only way that you can be confident that you are interpreting, for example, our, the patient's the case, that correctly. There is no way to know if that opiate is positive from oxycodone, heroin, or hydrocodone unless you get a GCMS. Yes. Um, is there a dose cutoff that you consider high enough doses for that? Or <laughs> of I'm course not. Everybody is right. different. Um, there is no no cutoff, but so what's what's important to know is your lab, because even the if the screening tests, the cutoffs are not necessarily consistent between all labs, and so it's important to know is it 
2,000 micrograms? Is it 1,000 micrograms that makes something positive? Um, so you got, you got to know your lab. But I, I mean, I would say kind of in general that somebody taking um, something like 90 morphine milliequivalents a day, um, which was this patient who was, who was on 60 milligrams, so that would be 60 milligrams of oxycodone a day, that's probably high enough to spill over. Yes. The micro... Um, is there a GC mass spec that differentiates between heroin and morphine? Yes. So for when you get GCMSs, six monoacetyl morphine, mono, yeah, monoacetyl MAM, six MAM is basically heroin. Um, yes. So so, op so opiates can be very complicated in terms of urine toxicity. One other big issue is fentanyl. At least in New York City, we're having a big uptick of fentanyl-related overdoses. This is a big problem. Fentanyl is not detected in, in, in any of the screening um, uh, urine toxicology tests. It's really difficult to detect. It's even difficult to detect in autopsies. So you have, if, if you, in, in, your, in your area, if you think that there's fentanyl happening, you gotta, you gotta get a specific GCMS test for it. The third point, and this is obviously not opioids, but I just want to say one word about benzodiazepines because a lot of my patients see psychiatrists who, and they're getting clonazepam. Typically, patients taking clonazepam will have a negative urine drug test for benzos because of the metabolites. They are not picked up in the screening test. And I have gotten patients coming to me basically saying that their psychiatrist is going to stop treatment because their psychiatrist is accusing them of selling their benzodiazepines. And so this is really important. So it'll be positive for um, alprazolam, other opioids, diazepam, but not clonazepam, clonopin. And that is one of the most, commonly, most frequently used benzodiazepines in, in my world. So healthy respect for urine drug testing interpretation. GCMS, to really understand if all else fails, if there's any questions, GCMS. Yes. I just want to comment on um, the gabapentin abuse that we're seeing in our state, um, where it's um, either uh, being uh, inhaled, um, but it's so I was wondering why people, my pregnant ladies, were coming in and asking and losing their gabapentin prescriptions, and, at, and especially at the higher doses, that it's creating the effects of either sedation or lowering the opiate threshold. Yeah, so I mean, I have heard this about gabapentin. Um, I think, I, I honestly don't know, I mean, I've heard sort of bits and pieces here and there. Like, I don't know enough about the pharmacology to fully understand it, but, but um, I feel like there are some medications like this that have this sort of secondary effect. I mean, that's one of them. Um, ritonavir is another one of them. Um, and there's a couple other ones that are like cold medications. That I can't think of them off the top of my head. Um, um, but, but I do think, right, so that certainly you can't detect in the urine drug test, but that is something, you know, to consider. I mean, I, I feel like in the various regions there's all these tricks to try and uh, misuse various substances. Yes. So if someone's on methadone um, and they come in for pain management, what's your suggestion? Because methadone tends to cause a little bit of, uh, take away a little bit of their pain, so I'm very hesitant to give them anything else. Yeah, that's like a million dollar question that I you know, can't answer in one hour, but I think, okay, so let me just say a word about methadone and buprenorphine. Again, they're not positive on opiates, you have to get a buprenorphine on the screen, you have to get methadone on the screen for them to be positive. They will not make the opiate positives. Um, I think that, you know, it's very, very challenging uh, patients who are on methadone maintenance for, for an opioid use disorder and are in pain. Um, we just um, published, or it's about, it's about to publish, um, a study looking at um, prescription opioids among methadone-maintained patients, and basically we found that there's all kinds of drug use. There's heroin, there's every, you know, kind of cocaine and everything around those who were prescribed opioid analgesics. 
So I think it's, it's very challenging. I mean, I, I don't have the answer. Um, and I certainly, the one thing I do say all the time to people in training is I, I'm, I would refrain from prescribing methadone. So I'm not sure if you were sort of getting at that because while it can be used for pain management, I feel like the reality is we it's easy to find yourself in a very difficult position not knowing what you're treating, if that's pain or if it's addiction. And that is not a place that I want to sort of live in. I want to know if I'm treating addiction and be very clear with the patient that this is about addiction versus pain. And I think methadone can sort of muddy those waters. Yeah. Can you comment on the use of serum drug screening versus urine drug screening? So, yeah, I mean, I, so we don't really use serum drug screening. Um, I don't really have very much... Um, <coughs> experience with that, and that is also not typically what drug treatment programs do either. I think more common is the oral swamps for, for um, toxicology testing or hair. Um, so, and they all have the sort of pluses and minuses, but we, we really don't do serum um, often at all. Okay, let's one one last comment because I know I want to keep moving on. Yeah, I, I, I've used low dose methadone, 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams uh, BID for lower back pain, for, uh, with people. You got to do an EKG before because of the QT, I believe, and uh, I found it very effective. And people didn't come back and ever, and really ever want more. And that's in New York City. But my my question for you is, if you have somebody on long term short acting analgesia like Percocet and you want to get them off, and you, is there some way you can approach them without them going postal on you? Uh, my apologies to postal workers, but, but you know, I've been in that situation, and it's very difficult, and if you could give us any wisdom yeah. on that, I'd appreciate it. You guys are asking, like, really tough questions. Um, I think that's, you know, I don't have the answer. Um, I think this is absolutely one of the big challenges of... Um, trying to come down on um, opioid doses in patients. I have patients that I'm trying to do it right now. Um, you know, the, so, the, so the guidelines from the CDC basically state to reduce by 10% per week or per month is also reasonable. So 10% per week for me would be like crazy. I mean, crazy. So, I mean, I can get, you know, I like barely move the needle with my patients and we have these whole long discussions about it. So, I don't have the right answer. This is, we're actually submitting another grant to look at tapering <laughs> and what's effective tapering. And ha you know, so um, I don't have the answer. That's a great question. Okay. Um, back to the case. So after reviewing the results of the urine drug test, you order a confirmatory GCMS. The test demonstrates oxycodone and 6-monoacetylmorphine, which is specific to heroin. So the patient misses his next appointment with you, but he reschedules it a few weeks later. At that visit, you discuss the urine toxicology test with him, and he reveals that he relapsed on heroin because he couldn't take the pain. He also ran out of his um, antiretrovirals and be, uh, because he misses his appointment with you. So now what? Moving on to medica medication-assisted treatment. So you all know that we can treat substance use, opioid use disorders both with pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatment. And in pharmacologic treatment, there's three medications that are approved. So there's naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist, which I'm not going to talk about. And then there's buprenorphine and methadone. So, you know, of you all sitting in the room, I'm sure most of you cannot prescribe methadone for opioid use disorder unless you're in, in a, you know, a drug treatment program. And so most of us really can um, move the needle on this opioid epidemic and opioid use disorders by providing buprenorphine treatment. And so I'm going to talk about um, the effectiveness of buprenorphine, um, especially among HIV-positive patients. Somebody brought that question up. Um, looking at HIV outcomes, drug outcomes, and then some other outcomes, and then also some challenges. So to review the pharmacology, um, buprenorphine is really different than essentially all the other opioids that are out there that, that we use. Um, two important things about buprenorphine. So compared to methadone and all the other opioids, buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist. All the other opioids are full opioid agonists. This is a critical point, and it matters for a lot of reasons. It matters because these are, this is what makes 
providing treatment a little challenging, but also what provides a lot of safety in prescribing buprenorphine. Um, all the opioids that we talk about go to the mu opioid receptors. Um, the other thing that's really important about buprenorphine, it has a very high affinity for the mu opioid receptor. I'm going to get back to that because that really matters. Um, methadone tends to be um, uh, taken orally. Buprenorphine is sublingually. Um, buprenorphine is in a tab or a film. The half-life is pretty long for both of them, 24 to 36 hours, and they're both metabolized through the P450 system in the liver. So what, why does it matter that buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist? So this is a graph that shows um, the difference between a full agonist and a partial agonist. And so a full agonist is like methadone, heroin, oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, you name it. And basically what this curve shows is this opioid effect here and dose on the um, x-axis that the more you take, the, the higher the opioid effect you get, right? So at some point up here, you stop breathing and you die, you overdose, right? Buprenorphine is very different because it's a partial opioid agonist. It, it has this ceiling effect. So initially, when you start to take buprenorphine, the more you take, the higher the opioid effect you get. But then there's the ceiling effect. So what does that mean? So that means if patients take 1,000 milligrams of buprenorphine, they're still living here on this plateau. What does it mean if, if we have to get to this level of opioid effect to stop breathing? It means that that won't happen with buprenorphine. So this is why buprenorphine doesn't have to be prescribed in a special drug treatment program. This is why we can do this in primary care settings. It has a lot to do with this safety. So what about the treatment delivery? You all know that methadone is highly regulated um, and that you, it can only be dispensed and prescribed at a methadone maintenance treatment program. Um, and all these things, counseling visits, urine drug tests, et cetera, et cetera, are regulated at the federal and, um, and state levels. Buprenorphine is regulated, but a lot less. Um, and so buprenorphine in a treatment can happen anywhere, in the hospital, in the emergency room, in a primary care, with a, you know, anywhere. Um, the provider has to be an MD or DO, as I mentioned earlier. PAs and NPs cannot prescribe. Hopefully that will change soon. Providers must get a DEAX number, which means they have to go through eight hours of training. Um, trainings, you can do that online. Um, and you have to have the ability to refer for counseling. You don't have to do counseling, but you have to be able to refer. Um, and then the dispensing is, happens in community pharmacies, just like all the other medications. Prescriptions can be a 30-day supply with refills, unlike a lot of other opioids. Um, and the treatment slots, in the first year, a, a physician can treat 30 patients at once, then can apply to go up to 100, and just as of three weeks ago, can go up to 225 patients. There's also legislation, there is a bill in the House or the Senate that's um, to actually remove this cap for, for um, physicians, so we'll see what happens with that. So, yeah, so the question was, do you need a triplicate? So you have to have a DEA number um, in order to get a DEAX number. So that's the only thing. Um, so I don't know if you mean triplicates like in terms of the actual prescription. So I'm, this is interesting, because in New York, we, we're, we're, not, we're no longer using paper. We're using electronic. So I, I, don't, I think it's probably state by state. Um, PAs cannot prescribe. NPs cannot prescribe at this point. And there's, there's a bill Didn't in the... Did change? Because I have a PA who is prescribing. Well, so... <laughs> Well, I know. So, so, I mean, there are PAs and NPs who were involved in the management of buprenorphine, and, but technically the prescription is, go, is by the well, physician who has the DEAX number because physician assistants cannot get DEAX numbers. You, and so, in order to do, so you have to do the eight hour training to get a waiver. Once you get the waiver, you get a DEAX number and to prescribe. So, unless this has happened like in the last day or two. Did the, the training for the second time, and um, I think we're going to be able to prescribe. I'm sure of it. So, it's pardon me. Fe so the federal legislation right, right now only allows MDs right. and DOs to prescribe. This is data 2000. 
So buprenorphine, the sublingual buprenorphine, it's not FDA approved for pain. It's FDA approved for addic- treatment of addiction. Now, there's, now, we use things off-label. Um, so there's that. And then there's other forms of buprenorphine, the injectable forms that are used for pain management. In the current legislation, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, NPs and PAs are not allowed to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorders. I am hopeful that that will change quickly. And like I said, there's a, there's a bill in either the Senate or the House right now to address this. Okay. Um, so getting back to another key difference between buprenorphine and other opioids. That b- because, um, because both it, buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist and because it is co-formulated with naloxone, this is what really allows for the, for the minimal regulation. So what is naloxone? Narcan. It's an opioid antagonist, right? So you have an opioid partial agonist and an opioid antagonist in the same tablet, pill, film. Sounds a little bit weird, but what does that mean? It means that if patients take the medication correctly by putting it under their tongue, the buprenorphine is, um, 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 <laughs> is absorbed. Um, and the naloxone is not. However, if they try to crush it up and inject it, the naloxone is absorbed and they go into immediate opioid withdrawal. So for this reason, and the fact that it's a partial opioid agonist, this is really what makes this medication much safer than a lot of the other things that are prescribed every single day. Okay. So... Um, after realizing you can offer the patient buprenorphine, you take the eight-hour training, you become certified to prescribe buprenorphine, and you get your DEA number. At the next visit um, with the patient, you offer him buprenorphine treatment. He's heard about it, but he's never taken it. He knows other people who are taking it, but none of them are HIV positive. So he's worried about the interaction between buprenorphine and HIV. So he wants to know how well does buprenorphine work for people with HIV. So there was a multi-site study that was funded by HRSA, um, that um, basically looked at the integration of HIV, of buprenorphine treatment into HIV settings. And so there were 10 sites from across the country. You can see them there. And there was a variable study design um, w- where some, a couple of them were randomized control trials, a couple of them, m- most of them were not, um, but in which buprenorphine was basically integrated into HIV care. Um, participants were followed for 12 months. And so Within the 10 sites, there were almost 400 participants that were all opioid-dependent and eligible for buprenorphine treatment. And just to jump to the you know, bottom line, what we found is that HIV um, outcomes improved with buprenorphine treatment. So this is, um, this is um, a figure that looks at, um, compares people who were retained on buprenorphine for three or more quarters out of a year versus those who were not retained on buprenorphine and looking at the percentage of those who were initiated, who initiated antiretroviral therapy. So the dark bars are those who were retained for longer periods of time, and the, and the lighter bars are those who were not retained. And so we can see that retention in buprenorphine treatment was associated with initiation of antiretroviral therapy. The next figure um, looks at viral load suppression. The same thing, people who were retained in buprenorphine um, versus not, and we see that viral load suppression is higher among people who were retained in buprenorphine treatment. So better HIV outcomes for those retained on buprenorphine. Yeah. yeah. So I appreciate that. And another thing about this study that I often talk about is how important the role of the care manager was. And that, you know, although there's a doc involved in this, it's critical, that team and the team you have in this scenario is, you know, maybe a different profile than you've had traditionally, or at, you have to augment that team to make this work. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to pass these around. Integrating buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorders in HIV primary care. This has, this is um, a manual that I have been very involved in um, and really comes from our experience with these studies. And so just, I just want you guys to take a look at this because we have these. This is, again, another HRSA-funded project. And this is Alexa over here. Alexa's over here. And so we, 
are happy to give these out to whoever wants them. And part of what's in them is exactly what you said about the buprenorphine coordinator. Really important. So like, what have we learned? Like, how do you actually do this, right? How do you do buprenorphine treatment in the primary care setting when people are busy and they have all these things that they have to do with their, with their providers and with insurance companies and blah, 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 blah. How do you actually do this on the ground? And this is a great resource. And so some of the things I'm going to talk about too are already in here in terms of what you need to know. So um, I'm, on, the, on the slides is Alexis's email. You can contact her. We can send you guys these um, very practical information. Yes. Aren't they available publicly? IAS website available. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those were the HIV outcomes. These are the drug use outcomes. And we look at um, buprenorphine over each quarter. Um, and, we, and in the red is opioid use, and the blue is stimulant use, and gray is sedative use. And you can see that over time, as people were retained, that their opioid use improved and their stimulant um, use actually improved. No change in sedatives. And this is what we definitely see is, you know, a lot of patients who use cocaine only use cocaine when they're using heroin. So if the heroin goes away, the cocaine often goes away. Um, and so buprenorphine does not treat cocaine. It does not. It treats opiates. But depending on how people use opiates, often people speedball using the two opiates and cocaine together. And so if the opiate is gone, often the cocaine goes with it. Yes. So one of the benefits that I've seen in buprenorphine treatment is that people do use less sedatives, less benzodiazepines, because that stimulation of the mu receptor by buprenorphine has an anxiolytic effect that people do often find to be pretty effective. So yeah. it's kind of a benefit yeah. that it does treat some level of underlying anxiety. Yeah. Yes. So I think another take-home point from your slide is that opioid use, misuse, doesn't go to zero. <laughs> right. And so uh, we have to be very careful not to, you know, not to be trigger-happy in discontinuing people off their buprenorphine just because their uh, urine screens might be positive yeah. for heroin uh, or opioids. I, I agree. I mean, I think this is also get, – we, we get at this in this implementation guide, which is that is, is it, you know, as an individual provider and as a clinic, you have to sort of figure out – where you're comfortable living in the world of sort of harm reduction versus abstinence. And it's a chronic illness, it's relapsing and remitting, and people are not perfect. And so you have to think about how you're going to address ongoing substance use. And I would say this is particularly important with non-opioid substance use, again, because buprenorphine does not treat other drugs. You know, so if patients continue to use cocaine, then what? or if patients intermittently use opiates, then what? And really, like, knowing sort of where you feel comfortable with that and making sure that the expectations are really clear to patients, your expectations and their expectations. It's really important. Yes? Can you comment a little bit um, about Vivitrol? Because I've heard that that's, um, I, I don't know if that's new on the market or if that's been around for a while, but where that fits in when you... Uh, you know, when you're comparing between buprenorphine referrals versus Vivitrol referrals? Right. So, so Vivitrol is the name brand for um, an injectable naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist. So it's, it stays in your system for about four weeks, and it, it's an antagonist so that you get no, you know, so you can continue to use opioids and you will get no effect. Um, so there are data to demonstrate that it's effective. Um, in my world, there are very few people interested in, in naltrexone, um, and, you know, there's a sense of dysphoria from it because you're really blocking all the mu opioid receptor. And we have endogenous opioids, and that's blocked. And so people just don't really like the feel of it. Um, but, but I think it is, you know, it definitely should be on the menu of options as, as um, a treatment option. It's just that I have no patients ever asking for it. We just brief, will you will you be addressing who the optimal candidates would be for this? Um, I am going to address about pain. Um, well, I mean, we have some of our patients who allegedly who feel they're getting their opiates because of back pain or whatever, and then others that were suspicious or addicted. And there's obviously a lot of crossover between. So, who would be the best candidate for? 
for this program. Right. So, so this is for the treatment of opioid use disorder. And um, what, I, what I say is that um, in our data, in fact, heroin users do be- did better, do better than prescription opioid users. And now that's not, there are other, there's other studies that show the opposite. There are clearly differences between heroin users and prescription opioid users demographically, right? Like prescription opioid users are more white, more fluent, et cetera. But I think it, it, it brings up this issue about what people believe they have. And prescription opioid users often don't buy into the fact that they have addiction. And so it's really hard to treat something that people don't think they have. <laughs> right? Right. And so, so, and if people basically say they have pain, they like walk down the street and go to the emergency room and get prescription opioids. Right? If you're a heroin user, it's pretty hard for you to like try and sell me that you don't have a problem. And it's pretty hard to get heroin. Well, not that hard to get heroin, but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, another doctor is not going to give you that to you. So, so that, I think, lies in where the challenge is. And, you know, so this, this, er, this intersection of pain and addiction is very challenging. It's like that's like a whole other talk. Um, and so it's challenging. So... So there are challenges with pain, and part of what I want to say about pain is that unlike methadone, if patients need pain, you can layer on prescription opioids. With buprenorphine, because it has such a high affinity for the opioid receptor, you cannot. So if patients are going to require opioid analgesics to manage their pain, they are not going to be good candidates for buprenorphine. Um, But we did a study that looked at those patients who had chronic pain and had opioid use disorders and looked at, looked at outcomes. And what we found um, the, in, the, in the black bars, the, those who have pain at baseline, and the white bars, those who didn't have pain, is that there was no difference in treatment retention and there was no difference in opioid use over time by those who had pain and didn't have pain. So even though some of the treatment guidelines, which are here, these, these are the ones I put in the back, talk about who's a good candidate, including pain issues, um, I think that you, you, do, you do get some analgesic effect from, opio- from buprenorphine. Because it's a partial agonist, you're not going to get the same kind of effect that full agonists will, but you will get some. And pain did decrease in our, in our patients. But you're limited. And you're really not going to be able to layer on adi- additional opioid analgesics. Okay, I'm just mindful of the time. Do you know what this ends in like... Are we over time already? Okay. So um, the, the one, just the one last thing I wanted to say is around the buprenorphine induction because this often is a very, uh, this is challenging for a lot of um, both patients and providers. So the induction is when you actually initiate buprenorphine. And again, because of the pharmacologic properties, um, you have to get off a full agonist to get on a, f- a partial agonist. And in order to do that, patients have to be in withdrawal when they start buprenorphine treatment. So that can be challenging. A lot of the treatment guidelines have said that this process has to happen in the office. That's very difficult. It's really impossible for us to do. So we developed a home induction kit and studied it and found good outcomes. All of these tools are in that buprenorphine integration guideline. And so, so you can take a look at you know, we walk patients through the process of how to do this at home over the weekend, you know, so you don't have to miss work, so you don't have to be in opiate withdrawal in the clinic and still have good outcomes. And so when, so this is just the results of our study, which basically showed no difference in opioid use between those who got home induction versus the observed office-based induction. And so this is just one tool to address one of the challenges. So to summarize... <laughs> Um, the opioid epidemic continues to grow. Um, even though we see this plateau in opioid analgesics, heroin use is continuing to grow, and um, overdose deaths from it. There's this large treatment gap, and we can be part of this solution, particularly with buprenorphine. There's many, many challenges to pain management, um, and interpretation of urine drug tests is really one of the important things that I think you can take home in terms of really thinking about GCMS and, and, and really trying to understand the metabolites. 
Um, it remains unclear how opioid analgesics use are associated with HIV outcomes, but what we do know is that integration of buprenorphine treatment with HIV treatment does lead to better HIV outcomes and better um, um, drug use outcomes as well. Yes. So as far as uh, providers becoming trained to be, to be buprenorphine prescribers, there's many different ways to do it. And if you, know, if you were advising a primary care provider who's going to be, be putting together an integrated format for doing this, or an HIV provider who's trying to integrate it into their clinic, is there any one of these um, prep courses that is better than any other? Than I mean, the others? now more and more, there's these half and half courses. So people are doing half online and then half in person. I think that is a nice combination. You know, the, the reality is, is I, I feel a little bit like the training course is like a check the box because there, half of the people who get trained don't go on to prescribe buprenorphine. So I think, so it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think really what helps people along the line is to A, have a buprenorphine coordinator. So we kind of borrow from our Ryan White resources um, to make that happen. And then also to really partner with somebody who has experience. So we, d we have monthly case conferences that I run. You know, I'm like always available to people like for email questions because I think the providers are so nervous about this that they just want some, somebody to turn to if there's problems, right? And so I think that that's really important more so than the, than the kind of training. It's just like is, is having that sort of level of backup or level of expertise that, that, that you can go to. Three, three, three more comments. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, um, you know, I, I encourage everybody who doesn't have, um, you know, their XC license to get it. Uh, this is really very important. You know, we don't have enough treatment for opiate uh, disorders. And the other group that you actually can bring in is also the Hep C patients. Totally. Absolutely. Um, and um, the last point is I wouldn't be um, too concerned about the induction. I've been doing this for a long time. And most of the patients out there have taken Suboxone. Totally. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree. Ten years ago, it was a big deal. Now, it's not even a big deal. But I think in some areas of the country and some certain types of patients, there's more people are more nervous than others. But I agree. Like, this is like a non-issue for us. I also agree about the Hep C. All my patients getting buprenorphine treatment are getting Hep C cures, which is unbelievable. Okay, great. Thank you. Sorry for keeping you guys over. <laughs>